The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please take out your Bibles. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 16 and beginning at verse 9. Last September, I was at the Ocean City Bible Conference with my family, and I took my kids to Playland Castaway Cove, which is basically like a glorified carnival, the kind where you look around at all the the different rides and you're curious. I'm not sure who built these or put them together. Um, And I decided the time had come, so I took Ace on his very first roller coaster ride. And in terms of roller coasters, this was probably like a 2 out of 10 in terms of like scariness or, or, or intensity. But for Ace, this was brand new. And this was terrifying to him. So as the cart moved slowly up that hill, you know how it goes, click, 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 click. He's getting more and more scared, and he's telling me how terrible of a father I was and how this is a bad idea. And he doesn't want to do this. And I told him, Ace, it's going to be over before you know it. Sometimes we really hope to hear those words. Sometimes we really don't want to hear those words. Uh, recently, I've heard many times from parents or adults who are a little farther on in their stage of life than I am, and they'll tell me, really treasure this time that you have your, with your kids when they're young because it's over before you know it. So some of you may be really excited to hear that we're coming to the end of the book of Mark today. Some of you might be desirous to hear that it's, it's over before you know it, maybe because we've been here for a very long time. Some of you maybe are really sad to see this go. I, I'm personally sad to see us put the book of Mark behind us for this time. But I want to encourage you, as we've been on this journey since September 20th of 2015, that I have grown much because of this book. I have become a better Christian because of knowing my Savior more clearly because of what I've seen here in this book of Mark. However, I do want to tell you that the book of Mark was over probably before you knew it. And if you've been with us for any length of time, you'll know that I have a somewhat predictable pattern of preaching. Normally, I will read the text, and then I will pray over the text, and then I will give you an outline, and then I will preach the text. However, today we're not going to read it because Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, they're not really part of the Bible. So what we're going to do this morning is a little bit different than usual. If you like taking notes, our path moving forward is going to look a little bit like this. First, we're going to consider why these verses should not be part of our Bibles. Secondly, we are going to see how we got these verses into our Bibles. Third, we are going to consider good content that's actually present in these verses. Fourthly, we'll consider a couple of problems that arise from these verses. And finally, we'll close with three applications. Before we do that, before we make any move in our own strength, let's pray and ask God once again that he would work through us and through his word and in us today. God, I thank you so much that you are good, as we have sung about all morning. And one of the ways in which you have shown us your goodness is by preserving your word for us. Lord, I pray that we would treasure it, that we would delight in it, we would see you clearly in the word, that you would cause us to be more like Jesus because of it. And God, as we come to the Bible this morning, I pray that you would help us to have wisdom as we consider textual criticism and especially a very challenging thing with these final verses of the book of Mark. 
God, we pray that you would please help us to have clarity and understanding and wisdom as we approach it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's begin by considering why these verses should not be here in our Bibles. First of all, I hope that you are all on the edge of your seats right now. I hope that this concerns you, that I have made this statement. I hope that you are not comfortable with anyone, me even as your pastor, or anyone else that would come here and say to you that anything is not supposed to be in the Word of God. If anyone comes to you and makes any kind of unsubstantiated claim, you should naturally be suspicious. The reason that we preach the way that we do here is that we believe that God's word is true, we believe that it is authoritative, and we believe that it is sufficient for everything that we need to know for life and for godliness. And it would be a good thing for you to be suspicious of me making a claim that any word of your Bible shouldn't be there. However, I want you to do a very little bit here of detective work with me before you shut me down or attempt to stone me or call me a heretic. Let's do a little bit of simple research together. Please, if you don't already have your Bible, it's really important that you open it up to Mark chapter 16. If you have a King James version of the Bible, you're not going to see anything that I'm about to mention. But if you have virtually any other translation, your Bible either will not have verses 9 through 20, or you will probably have some kind of a marker or an asterisk or a bracket connected to a footnote, which tells you that these verses are historically unreliable. Are you seeing those things in your own Bibles? You will especially will see that if you're looking at a study Bible. So allow me to briefly explain a few of the reasons why these verses should not be here. The other day, I was attempting to call Jim Capo. I was downstairs, I was moving some boxes around, and I was giving him a, a quick phone call, and I was distracted as I was moving these things around, so I had my headset in, and I was talking through my, my headphones, basically, and I just made the phone call and put the phone in my pocket, and Jim didn't answer the phone. Instead, a woman answered the phone, And for a moment, I was incredibly confused, and then I quickly realized, I didn't call Jim, I called my wife. And so Ashley's like, you've, this is Ashley, Caleb, you called your wife, what are you, I'm not Jim. Now, we can tell when a voice belongs to another person, but you can also tell in writing when a style belongs to a different person. You can tell when it doesn't seem to fit with the style or the terms or the words that an author normally uses. Mark has an incredibly pronounced style. As I've been studying these words carefully for the past couple years, I have become very quick to see patterns that arise everywhere in this book. You've probably become too familiar with the term Mark and Sandwich, as I've said it so many times over the last two and a half years. However, when we get to these last 12 verses, all of that style briskly changes. There are many words that are used here that are not used anywhere else in this book. In fact, there are some that are used that are not found anywhere else in our New Testament. One scholar that I read described Mark's writing as being incredibly precise, but he describes these words as being, quote, very sloppy. So the evidence begins with the fact that the style, the formatting, the word choice is very inconsistent with the rest of the book. Now, I'm not going to get real technical and show you all the examples, but if you look and begin studying this on any deeper level, you'll see that these just do not fit with the rest. It's also worthwhile to take a look at the way these verses have been understood historically. 
It is interesting to note that the earliest commentators of the book of Mark, such as Clement of Alexandria or Cyprian or Origen, none of them seem to know anything about these verses. They will give commentary on the rest of the book, and when they arrive at verse 8, they end. If you look at literally hundreds of thousands, we have literally hundreds of thousands of quotes from the early church fathers from the Gospels. Zero times do they ever quote from these last verses that we find in our Bibles, verses 9 through 20. And that should cause us to raise our eyebrows. Eusebius, who is known as the father of church history, wrote about these verses around the year 400, and they had been written by that point because he says, Indeed, the accurate copies conclude the story according to Mark with the words, They were afraid. By the way, that's verse 8. For the end is here in nearly all of the copies of Mark. Jerome, who was the first to translate the Bible into Latin, what we call the Vulgate, he also knew about these verses, but he informs us that he does not believe that they're reliable or that they are part of the original documents of Mark. Therefore, he doesn't include them in his translation. But the main reason that we have to deny this section of the book comes from the fact that we have so many early copies of the book of Mark, and these words are not found in any of them. The Bible is the most reliable ancient document that we have. The New Testament has been preserved through time better than literally anything else that we have in our university or museums or libraries. We like to talk about a lot of the histories. We talk about Plato and Aristotle and we talk about their writings. We don't have any early documentation of those writers. Most of the stuff we have from them comes from a thousand years later or more that were copied. We don't know for sure if they even actually said those words or if they were changed or translated or mutated over time. But with the Bible, we have assurance that it was not only copied many times, but it was widespread geographically, which makes those datings go back even earlier. Now, we don't have the original copies of the books of the Bible, and honestly, that's probably a good thing. Because if we did have them, we would probably make an idol out of them. If you remember back in the book of Numbers, Moses was told to make a serpent out of bronze and to raise it up on a pole. Well, if you go 480 years into the future, what you see happening is the people of Israel are worshiping it. They had given it a pagan name, Nahushtan, and now they are bowing down and burning sacrifices to a serpent on a pole that was intended to point forward to Jesus. We naturally create idols out of things like this. So I think it's okay and probably even a good thing in the wisdom of God that he has caused us not to have the originals. However, we do have tons of copies of the New Testament books, 5,700 of them to be precise. And we have copies of Mark that were made roughly 40 to 70 years after the original. And those copies were copied. And then those copies were copied. And those documents proliferated rapidly and spread across the world. Occasionally, though, one of those documents that were copied would be altered slightly. And that would mean that every copy made from it would carry the mistake. Anyone who has used a copy machine totally understands this. You want to make copies from the original. Because if you make copies of a copy, it has more little specks on it and spots on it and hairs that get in the machine on it. And then all of a sudden you start making copies of copies of copies. You can't even hardly see what the original was supposed to say. Now you always want to make a copy from the original because the farther you get out, the more it fades away. 
What we do know is that relatively early on, one of the copies of Mark was given a different ending. And that ending was copied and eventually fell into the hands of William Tyndale. If you were here and remember back to October, we learned about how William Tyndale was responsible for the very first English translation of our Bible that was translated from Greek. And for that wonderful work of faithfulness, the Roman Catholic Church saw fit to put him to death. And then later in 1611, when England was putting together the official uh, King James Version, they left more than 80% of Tyndale's work completely intact and didn't touch it. Only about 20% required linguistic updates on, on his translation. And one part that they left in his translation was the end of the book of Mark. They were using the same Greek documents as the as Tyndale used as his foundation, and none of those documents were very old. That's why in your King James Bibles, you're probably going to notice there's nothing that it says about these verses. It treats them as though they are actually supposed to be there. Because the King James Version of the Bible is so widely known, and for literally hundreds of years was the only English translation available, it is highly regarded when any new translation is being made. They look at that and they compare and say, how do we need to treat our translation and take into consideration what's already gone before us. And for that reason, almost every Bible translation has opted to leave these verses in, but they have made sure to notify the readers that this part of your Bible is not historically reliable or legitimate. So without getting very technical here, I will simply state that of the thousands of copies that we have of the book of Mark, it has become abundantly clear that these words were added hundreds of years after the original. Now, I have nine commentaries that I've used for the book of Mark that have helped to guide me and help me think carefully through this and and prepare sermons for you, and none of them think that these verses are legitimate. In fact, I don't know of a single reliable scholar that believes these verses are legitimate and that they should be there. In fact, I don't even know of any liberal scholars who believe that these words should be there. So all of these details, plus many more that we don't have time to research, gives me great assurance in saying to you, these words are not supposed to be here. And this really matters. And it matters because we are basing our lives and, in fact, our eternity on the Word of God. Everything comes down to whether or not the Bible really is from God or whether it's from man, because this is our authority. This book is not just a compilation of stories. This book is not just some collection of ancient wisdom by smart people. It's more than just history. This is God's way of revealing himself to us all throughout history. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 tells us that this book is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide between soul and spirit and bone and marrow. 2 Timothy 3.16 teaches us that this is breathed out by God and that it is profitable. So we want to be very weary of ever removing anything from it. That would be a great sin. But we also want to be very cautious not to include anything that is not genuinely from the mouth of God. We do not reject texts because they are difficult to understand. We do not reject them because they make us uncomfortable or because of the way they convict us or because we just don't like what they have to say. We have no right to ever deny any part of the word of God for those reasons. But we must make sure that we are trusting in what God actually gave us. Second Peter chapter 1. 
uh, chapter 1 was read for us earlier by Jonathan, it tells us that they were riding these things as God was carrying them along. Think of a stick thrown into a river. God was carrying them along in that way. He was leading them, teaching them, helping them to understand so that they might write down exactly what we are to have. And we want to be like the disciples who said to Jesus, where else can we go? For you have the words of eternal life. These words are words of eternal life. So as I have approached these words, I want you to know that I am not telling you this is not part of your Bible just because I feel like it. I have approached this with much fear and trembling, seeking the face of God for wisdom. And I believe that God has given us the tools to weed these verses out so that we can recognize them as imposters. So let's move now to our second point this morning. Let's try to answer the question, how did these verses make it into our Bibles? Now, I've already kind of given you the later stages of that question because the manuscripts that William Tyndale had his fingertips on contained this ending, and that's why we have it now in our Bibles. But how did it get to him? That's a difficult question to answer because ultimately we don't really know. But it might be helpful to offer a few possibilities so you can better understand how manuscripts can occasionally contain errors. Now remember, the original autographs were inspired by God. The original writings were written uh, through his power without flaw, but the copies were not. So occasionally, a scribe would accidentally add a word or leave a copy, uh, leave a line out or a word out. And that's what happens when, you're, when your job is basically to sit in a room that is dark and dusky and you make copies all day long, every day, very slowly with utensils that are not what we have now to work with, and then occasionally you would make a mistake. There were no erasers. There were no backspace buttons. Once a word is on the page, it stays there. So most errors that we have in the various manuscripts are incredibly obvious errors. In fact, oftentimes, scribes would make notes in the margins informing us, I made a mistake. Please take note, I left out a word or I forgot a line. And they would accidentally make a mistake and then they would tell us that they had messed up. Most of the time, the changes that were made were misspellings. Or they would use the word but instead of the word and. Or they would remember what Matthew's gospel said and then they would accidentally paraphrase it slightly in Mark's gospel and put something there that was just a little bit different than Mark's gospel originally read. However, it is highly unusual that something would be added. Even to add a single word is very unusual and it is especially unusual that something of this length would be included. So here are a few suggestions that scholars have made about why this was potentially placed here by, by a scribe. Some believe that the scribe was sending out the Gospel of Mark by itself, just this one book of the Bible, and he did not want the readers to be ignorant about the rest of the story of Jesus. Bibles in the year 350 cost the equivalent of $20,000. That's $2,000 more than a Toyota Corolla. And that's how much people would pay to have a copy of the scriptures, which were incredibly large and took a long time to create. And it was an incredibly costly venture to get one. So oftentimes, people would purchase a part of the Bible. And because Mark is the shortest of the Gospels, it was by far the most widely copied and most widely purchased and gifted. So imagine for a moment a scribe reading verse 8, which says this, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. 
You can just imagine him saying to himself, that's not the end of the story. There's a lot more here that I want people to know. John speaks about Jesus showing up in the room with the disciples. Luke 24 gives us a ton of information about Jesus walking with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Luke tells us and Acts tells us about the ascension. Matthew gives us the great commission. I'll just give them Mark and then they're going to miss out on so much. They're going to miss out on so many important details. So it's possible that this scribe was attempting to add short snippets from each of the other gospels and, and part of Acts as well that were never expected to be passed down. He probably never anticipated that these words would be transmitted into later documents, but that this would just serve for the one person to whom he is copy, for whom he is copying, copying this gospel of Mark. He was just attempting to include it for the sake of the original readers who would not have the rest of the, the books. However, others believe that this scribe had different motives. They believe that he was attempting to help Mark out. He felt like Mark failed, and this is not good enough. This is not a good place to end the book. Mark, you missed an opportunity, so I am going to help you out and give some more detail. So he stepped in, and he attempted to fix God's word. Now, if this is the case, it was an incredibly wicked thing for him to do. God's word is perfect, and if there was an attempt on his part to step in as though he was inspired like Mark was, it was a sin of incredible magnitude. Now, ultimately, we don't really know the heart of this person. Personally, I opt for the earlier perspective. I think probably that is true, but I'm not sure, and we won't know. But what we do know is that these words are not to be treated on the same level as Holy Scripture. Now, for our third point today, I would like to simply acknowledge that there is some truth to be found here in these words. It was not simply a bunch of made-up stories. It's not a bunch of things that have nothing to do with the rest of the New Testament. So let's briefly examine how these four events that are listed here fit into the narrative of Jesus. However, I'm not going to do this exegetically from the book of Mark because I am not going to treat these words as though they are Scripture. Rather, I am simply going to point you out point out to you their validity from the other gospel accounts. First, we have the account of Mary Magdalene being the first to see Jesus alive after the crucifixion. Now, all three of the other gospel accounts tell us about this and speak to us, informing us this is absolutely true. Now, it's an incredible thing, and in my opinion, a very beautiful thing, that we see this happening in the plan of God, that he would choose to first reveal himself to Mary Magdalene, She was the most unlikely of disciples. And from the world's perspective, she was absolutely the least deserving person to be a disciple of Jesus. In the first century, women were not highly regarded. And their testimony was often treated with great suspicion. Celsus, who was a pagan in the 240s, once wrote to the church father Origen, and he said, quote, Christianity can't be true because it is because the written accounts of the resurrection are all based on the testimony of women, and we all know women are hysterical. Now, there's importance to this. Even though this does not sit well with our modern sensibilities, it is important to understand that women were wrongfully viewed as not being trustworthy eyewitnesses in those days. Jesus did not show himself to Pilate. He didn't show himself to the centurion. He didn't show himself to the chief priests. He showed himself to his disciples, the people who had faith in him. And he started with this woman who had been so thankful for his ministry 
to her. This shows us a lot about the character of God and about the character of Jesus. This shows us the authenticity of the gospel accounts too, though. Think about this. Nobody would make this up in order to convince people of their story. Yet God in his wisdom revealed Jesus first to Mary Magdalene and then to many more disciples. So here's the second part of what Mark adds for us here at the end of this, or what the scribe added in Mark for us. The second story listed by the scribe is the account of Jesus meeting with the disciples on the road into the countryside. Now certainly this is referencing Jesus walking with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And the key to that passage in Luke 24 is that Jesus said these words in verses 25 through 27. He said, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That must have been the greatest sermon ever preached. Later, it tells us that their hearts burned within them and that Jesus was preaching himself to them from the entire Old Testament. So today, we've been talking about the Bible, but we would be remiss if we did not say and not see what Jesus was revealing to these two disciples. The entire Bible, every single word of it, reveals Jesus to us. That's what it is designed to do. It's all about him. Every story, every law, every genealogy, every clear passage, and every challenging passage, they are all about Jesus. That's why John chapter 5, 39, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness about me. Now, this is our ultimate hermeneutic. This is our ultimate way to know what the Bible is speaking. When you're reading the Bible, New Testament or Old, you must be searching it and asking yourself, what does this teach me about Jesus? How is this pointing to Jesus? God's word is the eternal self-revelation of God. And the fact that we have this book is evidence of God's love for us, a deep love that he would show us Christ through every single page. So we have something very precious here. And I think that that's something we can find not in the ending there of Mark, but in the real biblical account from, Mark 24, from Luke 24. Here's the third thing, the addition that the scribe made. It's a paraphrase of the great commission found in the book of Matthew. Now, I'm not going to say much about this here because it's going to be, fit a little bit more into our next point. But I will say this. Mark has been teaching about the great commission all throughout his book. Even if this wasn't here, which it isn't, it's not supposed to be, All throughout the book of Mark, we've been informed by Jesus that disciples are to be missional people. We have constantly seen that the heart of Jesus was not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus was constantly shaping his disciples to understand that the kingdom of God is for God's glory. And that means that all people should know. Now, if we take a step back to the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 for a moment, Jesus was teaching them about the Great Commission. When the disciples were asking Jesus how the great crowd is going to be fed, he said to them in Mark 6, 37, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Jesus is teaching them here. He is showing them, you don't have the power to do what I'm commanding you to do. I am telling you to do something and you cannot do it in your own strength. But then he miraculously multiplied the loaves and the fish and he told them, now you go distribute it to groups of 50 and to groups of 100. 
Likewise, the Great Commission is all about Jesus promising that he is going to build his church on earth. In Matthew 28, verses 18 18 through 20, we read these words. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now pause for a moment. Most people, when they memorize the Great Commission, they start at verse 19. You need these verses because this is the foundation. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Therefore, because of his authority, we can go. It is not in our strength, it is not in our power, it is in His that we go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Just like the disciples could not feed the people, they cannot save the people. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. He has power to save, not the disciples, not us. We are simply faithful to go and to make disciples by standing in his strength. And we can only do this because he is always with us, even to the end of the age. Now, the fourth and final addendum that the scribe made to this book of Mark is about the ascension. And we read about this most extensively in the book of Acts. The ascension reminds us that Jesus is not dead but he is alive and that he is ruling right now as the king of the universe. Acts 1.11 tells us that there were angels standing there when Jesus ascended, and they say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go up into heaven. So these things I want you to see here at the end of Mark, there are some good things to be found in these words that the scribe added. However, let's move now to our fourth point of the morning as we focus on a few problems that have arisen from these words. There are actually many problems that come from these verses, but I'm really just going to focus on two of them this morning. And both of them arise from this scribe's version of the Great Commission. First of all, in the false ending of Mark, we read these words in verse 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now, we believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the Bible is clear that salvation is never something that is rooted or grounded or founded in our works. And there are too many verses to count which reject the notion of a works-based faith or righteousness. So I'm not going to go through many of them here. In fact, I'll just give you one. Romans 11 verse 6 says, But it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. We are not saved by anything that we do. Not by our church attendance, not by our generosity, not by our intellect or intelligence or Bible knowledge. We are not saved by anything other than the grace of Jesus Christ. And that includes our baptism. Your baptism is not the cause of your salvation. It is not a piece to your salvation. But this verse has been used as a proof text for many people who believe in what's called baptismal regeneration. Those are people who will tell you that the blood of Jesus is what opened the door to heaven, but in order to get it, you must then be baptized. So the blood of Jesus plus your baptism allows you access to God. And if you inform them that salvation is not by works, they will always turn right to Mark 16, 16 and say, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. This is an incredibly problematic doctrine. 
It's problematic for many ways, but mainly because it can't be defended in any way from the Bible. Yet because many people have been led astray using this argument based on verses that shouldn't be here, we have to deal with this in our modern church era. Here's a second major problem that has arisen from the next two verses, verses uh, 17 and 18. It says this, And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, and they will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. Now it's important to note that when the scribe first wrote these words, he did so in Greek. And in Greek, there are no quotation marks. So many scholars believe that he never intended this to be viewed as a quote of Jesus. That rather he is using this as a description of what actually did take place with those who believed. So they would say that even the scribe didn't view this as prescriptive for the church, but as descriptive for the church. Therefore, it's unlikely that he even viewed these words to be from the mouth of Jesus. All the signs that he's listing here, these happened. These happened with the apostles. In the book of Acts, we see all of these things taking place, including the time that Paul was bitten by a poisonous snake and he didn't die. Now, it's likely that he was simply trying to give a brief apostolic history. However, in the King James translation in 1611, they determined that this should fit inside of the quotation marks. So it appears as though Jesus is declaring that if you really are a Christian, you should, quote, see these things with those who believe, that these signs will follow and accompany and be part of the ministries of all who believe. Now, this false belief is, is the root of much modern trouble. Much of the modern charismatic movement is grounded in ideologies like this one. I grew up in a denomination that believes in a doctrine that they refer to as the initial physical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they will argue that you do not have the Holy Spirit in you unless you first reveal that you do by speaking in tongues. And if these words from Mark were legitimate, that would be true. But Jesus did not say that these were signs that would be present in all believers because he never spoke these words. These words have spawned everything from snake-handling churches to healing seminars to exorcism classes. Yet none of those things are taught to us in Scripture. So even if the scribe did have good intentions, these words have resulted in many people being distracted, if not drawn away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So allow me to draw this all to a close with four final exhortations for us to apply to our lives. First, it's all about how you treat the Bible. Do not ever, do not ever under any circumstances attempt to fix what the Bible teaches. Do not try to apologize for it and do not add to it. Do not run away from difficult texts. And most importantly, never put words into the mouth of Jesus. This scribe who added these words to the end of Mark probably thought he was doing God a favor. He probably thought he was doing a good thing, but ultimately it has caused a great deal of damage. But when you try to soften the Bible to your friends, you're doing the exact same thing. When you try to pretend it's not saying what it's actually saying, we are doing the exact same thing. When we don't want people to know how God really feels about drunkenness or adultery or homosexuality or anger or pride, we can have the sinful tendency to pretend that God is okay with those things. 
And when we soften the blow for God, we are essentially doing exactly what we are saying not to do in this text. Do not think that you are divinely inspired like the authors of Scripture. You can't tell, I can't, or I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people who will talk to me and they will say to me, God has given me a word. And then they will proceed to tell me something that is exactly in contrast what the, to what the Bible actually says, to God's actual word. God does not contradict himself. Don't think that your intuitions or emotions or feelings are on par with Holy Scripture. And don't try to go beyond God's word. If these truly are God's words, and they are, then we need to trust that they will do God's work. So treasure the word of God. Store it up in your heart. Store it in your mind. You can't improve on what God has already made to be perfect. So proclaim it and proclaim it accurately. As as Isaiah chapter 55 verses 10 through 11 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Every time God's word is proclaimed, it succeeds in doing exactly what God intended to do. Whether that that is to redeem that person on the spot or it is to harden their heart, God is always working through his word every single time. Here's the second thing I want you to take away from this uh, sermon this morning. Do not fill your minds with things that suppose themselves to speak for God. Some of the most prominent books that are being sold in bookstores today are devotionals that are written as if they are letters from Jesus to us. The most well-known of these books is called Jesus Calling. Now, I know that I might be stepping on a few toes here, but I want to teach you and inform you lovingly and graciously, avoid these books. Jesus did not say those words. He does not speak them, and he is not saying them to you. If you want to know what Jesus has said to you, go to God's actual word. Not only does, God, does, does the author of this book claim to speak for God, she is also denying the sufficiency of God's actual word, saying that this is not enough. And she's practicing something more akin to the ancient rituals of psychography or automatic writing rather than something that is actually present in our Bibles. She believes that God is actually speaking truth to her and she is copying it down. Now, it is absolutely reprehensible that somebody would write a letter and then sign it with Jesus' name. But that is what these books do. And I want to encourage you strongly to avoid them. I know that I've only named one, but there are actually many of these books. Stay away from them they're much more likely to, ev- to lead you into error than they are to ever give you anything of benefit. But before I move on from that, just as a side note, I also want to encourage you in terms of the way that you view good pastors and teachers and preachers and writers, because they are all fallible too. Even the best of the best, even the people that I look up to, people like John Piper and Charles Spurgeon and Al Mohler, I look up to these men as brilliant. But guess what? Even they don't agree on everything, which tells you at least only one of them could be right. Most likely all of them are wrong somewhere. They are not God. They are not infallible. They get stuff wrong. I want to tell you the same thing about me. I do my best to know what the Bible is teaching and to preach it as clearly and truthfully and honestly as possible. But there are things that I get wrong. 
And so I want you to always be reading and listening and following along in your Bibles as I am preaching and watching and guarding. And if you think that I've said something that is untrue, it is your, not only your right, but it is your responsibility as a church member to come to me and say, I think you've missed it here. And we will lovingly come to the Bible and we will reason together and determine maybe I did get it wrong here. Do not elevate individuals, do not elevate people to the status where you think that they could never be wrong. Here's our third application today. Do not be intimidated by things like this in your Bible. Do not be intimidated by challenging questions. Do not be intimidated by textual criticism because this is something that we need to recognize. The world is out there saying all of these things, you're wrong because of this, and this is a problem, and you've made a mistake because of this, and it's not trustworthy because of this. There's answers to all of these things. Every single thing that could ever come against us, we will stand firm because we have the truth and the truth always will prevail. So don't be filled with fear or trepidation or get nervous when you see an asterisk in verses next to your Bible. Instead, dig in, study, and learn. Why is this here? What does this mean? When you see this bracket around the last part of the book of Mark, verses 9 through 20, and you see that it says, this is not found in the most reliable manuscripts, please understand, that's because the rest of the Bible is. And the rest of the Bible is trustworthy and reliable. So I want to encourage you, stand firm on the word of God. So before we leave today, I just want to ask you the question, are you doing that? It is one thing to say that you are standing on the word of God, and, and, and you can say intellectually, yes, I agree with what you're saying. I agree that it is powerful. I believe that it can change me. But if we really believe it, then we will live based upon it. We will dig into it. You can say, I think I need to eat food or I will die. And then just not eat for a week. You can say intellectually, I know that I need food to come into my body and then just ignore it. I don't think that's a problem with any of us. It's definitely not for me. But we say, I need the word of God. And then we set it down after we get home from church and we pick it up next Sunday morning and take it with us. Do we need this? We do. So I encourage you, stand on it, rely on it. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him. And that includes going to your Bible daily, prayerfully, humbly, on your knees, and thinking careful, carefully and critically and applying it to your life. And so if you need help figuring out how to do that, if you just say, I don't know where to start, come to me. I want to help you. I love this stuff. I want to encourage you and help get you into the word so that you might build your life upon it. There's a lot of things that might have arisen as questions today. Please know that just because we've ended this part of the sermon or just because we're ending the book of Mark doesn't mean that I want you to stay away from me and don't ask me any questions. I love this stuff. So if you want to learn more about textual criticism or more about the things I was discussing today, please know there's an open door to do that. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you so much that your word is faithful and true to us, that you have been faithful by giving it to us. We thank you that you have preserved it for us. And God, I thank you that there are so many people who have done the hard work of textual criticism and the hard work of Bible scholarship to study and to recognize that these words that we looked at today are actually not supposed to be here. And God, I pray that you would help us to put our faith and trust in what we have of the Bible, your divinely inspired word. Please do not let this shake us, but instead let us be encouraged by it to grow more faithful in our study of what you have said to us. 
God, I pray that you would help us to grow closer this week as we go through our days, uh, as we encounter circumstances that are filled with trials or joy. Please, Lord, allow us to approach each and every one of them in a way that is glorifying to you so that your name might be lifted high and that many others might see your glory. May the people around us see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.